Good morning. It's good to be back in the pulpit. Uh, Last week we had our spring Bible conference here on Saturday, and we used that weekend to highlight our involvement with the Pillar Network, and this is the network of churches that we belong to, and so Josh Redberg preached last Sunday. He was up from North Carolina, that was a blessing to have him with us, Uh, but I'm back, and so it's good to be here. I wanted to share something. Speaking of that, on Monday, we have our regional pillar meetings for pastors. Once a month, we get together and pray together, encourage each other, uh, whine about things to each other, which doesn't do any good, but it's still therapeutic at times. But this past Monday, we had this meeting together, and Ed Moore was there. Ed is a pastor from New York in the Pillar Network, and he brought an encouragement to us that was so helpful. He's been at the same church in New York for 32 years, and his encouragement to us, largely younger pastors, 50 and under, uh, his encouragement was for long-term pastoral ministry, that we don't see whatever church God has us in at the time as a stepping stone to get somewhere else, but we faithfully serve God where he has us with an eye to decades of faithful ministry. And it was encouraging to me because from the beginning of Grace Bible Church uh, three years ago, that has been what the Lord has led me to. I, I don't have aspirations of going anywhere else. Now, that might not be good news for some of you, but, my, <laughs> but seriously, as the Lord wills, I want to follow. And I, I love this church, and I want to be here for decades if the Lord would have me. And I want to see you grow in the Lord, and I want to grow together with you, and to see your kids grow up, and to walk with you through twilight years, and all of the things that come. It's just so encouraging. I wanted to share that with you, because I love pastoring in general, but I love shepherding you, and you are a joy to serve. And so after that sappy beginning, let's get into our text for this morning. We are going to look at the second half of Malachi chapter 2. So as you're turning there, let me just fill you in on how we got to this point now in the book. If you remember from chapter 1, God opened the book of Malachi by declaring his love for his people. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord of hosts. And the people say, "Mm, how have you loved us? And so out of all the examples God could have given them, he gives them this example that out of all the nations of the world, he has set his affection on them to be the apple of his eye, to be his treasured possession. And he uses this as a demonstration of his great love for his people. However, the fact that the Jewish people are God's people, that does not guarantee their obedience, their faithfulness. And as we move into chapter 1, we see that led by the priests who had kind of ignored what God wanted them to do, the people have started to engage in what God calls profaning his name. And the way that they have done this is by offering sacrifices that are not acceptable to God. God declares himself to be the great king and he, he props up his name and his glory. And if he is this kind of king, then the people should have offered acceptable sacrifices, but they don't. And they fail to bring to the Lord what he is rightfully owed. And therefore, he calls them out for this kind of sin. Then two weeks ago, we saw Malachi specifically address the priests. And he brings up how they have failed to keep covenant with God. They have failed to direct the people, to put boundaries around the people. 
But more than just calling out what they haven't done right, God offers instruction for what they ought to be doing. And this is one characteristic of our Heavenly Father, is that He not only offers correction and says, you screwed up, you better figure it out. He says, here's where you have fallen short, now let me tell you what you ought to do. So in that last section of Scripture, we saw God commanding the priests and saying, look, your lips should guard knowledge. You should speak true things. Rather than turning people aside, you should direct them back to me, back to the Lord, back to the covenant that we have established together. Now, as we get into chapter 2 in the second half today, we're going to see some of the areas in which the priests had allowed the people to step out of the will of God, to step out of what he had commanded them. And so specifically, we're going to look at three areas of faithlessness that the people had demonstrated. And then I want to close by asking the question, are we in any better shape? Do we have hope of being faithful to God or do we need help in that? So that's where we're going for this morning. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Malachi chapter 2 and follow along as I read starting in verse 10. Malachi 2 and verse 10. Have we not all one Father... Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Father, we come to you now in this text and ask once again for your help. We know there are ways that we can twist and distort your word to make it say what we wish it would say. We know that there are times when we want to weasel out from under the implication of your word. And so this morning I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would come and teach us. Open our eyes. Open our understanding. Give us patience as we learn. But Father, don't let us just stay in the same place. Grow us. Expand our understanding of you and your character and your word. Above all, Father, we need help. We are not able to be faithful to you in the ways that you have required, so please show us the path forward. Minister to us, Lord. Meet us here this morning. And we pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. 
Now, there's, there's one main issue, and you probably picked up on this as we read the text, right? One main issue with three different applications that God is dealing with here, and it is the issue of faithlessness, not being faithful. Now, the word faithless here does not mean without faith. Sometimes we read this word in the Bible, and it means they didn't believe they were faithless. They were not believers. It's not the context here. The word being used here for faithless means to act treacherously or to break covenant, to not uphold your end of the deal. This would be a word used for people who in business transactions said they were going to do something and then backed out and didn't keep their word. It was the, use, the word used for marital unfaithfulness of neglecting the covenant or the agreement that had been made. So when we see faithlessness, don't see, well, they just didn't believe. See, they were making promises and breaking them. They were acting treacherously. I think some of the translations still use that word, acting treacherously. So that's what's going on here. Five times in these seven verses, we see the word faithlessness. And God's concern here is that his people, who are called by his name, who are representatives of him, would model the same kind of covenant faithfulness that he has demonstrated to them. So there's a lot more tied up in this than just rote obedience. It is a matter of how the world around them views the covenant-keeping nature of God. If his people can't be true to their world, then why should anyone expect that God is true to his? See that connection? So that's kind of where we're going here. And there's, there's three things, three areas in which the people have failed to be faithful. So let's look at each of these things one at a time. First, I'm calling this general faithlessness or communal faithlessness. Look at verse 10 once again. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us all? Then why are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now you can see it right there in the question, why are we faithless to one another? Now notice that he starts by defining who God is in relationship to his people. Do you see some of those descriptive things? What is God? God is the one father. He is the God who created them. So what Malachi is doing through this language and what God is reminding the people of is that they are all in this together. Inside the covenant community of Israel, there is one God, one Father of all. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians, remember that? So God is communicating that everyone here has an obligation to be faithful to the covenant because they all have one Father. They all have one Creator, and it is God. And of course, this oneness language that he's using, one God, one Father, for the Jewish people would have been reminiscent of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Common for most of us, I'm guessing, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right, the, the oneness of God, the monotheistic nature of God was something that was prevalent in the Jewish religion. And so the reminder here comes and says, look, we all, all of us together here have one God. He is the creator. So why does anyone think within this community that you can act faithlessly? That's not what God requires of us. Nobody's off the hook here, including Malachi. Do you notice this in verse 10 when he says, why are we 
faithless to one another. He's not standing outside saying, well, I'm the spokesperson of God. I get a pass on this. You all are being uh, dummies out here, and I need to straighten you out. That's not what he's saying. You see, he includes himself here. He wraps himself into this and says, we are being faithless to one another. Now, what does that mean? What were they doing in this general kind of faithlessness? Well, Given the word usage, given the context here, the main issue in the covenant community was that people were making promises and breaking them. They were agreeing to do things or to follow through on agreement or contract or covenant or whatever word you want to fill in there, and then they would fail to do what they had promised to do. And God says, this is treacherous. You are profaning the covenant by not keeping your word. Now, why is this a big deal to God? I mean, is God really just concerned that people follow through for the sake of, well, I want them to have a good reputation. It's the right thing to do. What's being communicated here when God says, you're, you're failing to do the right thing in not keeping your word? I think this goes back to, I think I mentioned this just a moment ago. God keeps his word. I mean, this is, this is doctrine of God 101, that God keeps his promises. And his people are meant to act as God acts. Remember in uh, Ephesians 5, I think Paul opens the chapter and says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As his people... The people of God are to act as God acts. God is faithful to his word. He never breaks a promise. He never fails to do what he says he's going to do. And he requires that kind of faithfulness for his people. And when they do not do it, they break faith. They fail to uphold the terms of the covenant that God has established with them. God is faithful to his word, and he desires that his people be faithful to his word as a means of reflecting his character. Is God just looking for punctual people? Does he just want people that will show up when they say they're going to show up? You don't need God to do that. The world can be punctual. The world can show up when they say they're going to show up. But there's more than that going on. It's not just a matter of keeping a tight schedule here. God is saying the way that you deal with one another, the way that you uphold your end of the bargain says something about me, says something about God. Now just a quick point of application as we're moving through here. If you, right now, Grace Bible Church, if you tell someone that you are going to do something at a specific time, in a specific place, whatever that is, it dishonors the Lord if you fail to keep your word. Do you know that? This is not a light thing. God is a God of truth. He does what he says he will do. And he expects his people to model that same kind of covenant faithfulness. If you make an agreement, you do it. Not so that you get a good reputation and people think highly of you. God doesn't care. He's concerned with his reputation. God's a promise keeper and he wants his people to be promise keepers. In everything, down to the little things. I mean, you've been on the receiving end of this, I'm guessing. Have you ever tried to schedule a contractor to do work at your house? (laughs) 
You know what I'm talking about. It is unusual these days for someone to show up when they say they're going to show up. It ought not be like that in the people of God. If you say you're going to do something, brothers and sisters, do it for the sake of the reputation of our God. It's a big deal. So there's this kind of general community unfaithfulness. People were making promises and not doing it. Second, there is faithlessness in marrying unbelievers. Faithlessness in marrying unbelievers. Look at verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now when he says, married the daughter of a foreign god, what should we contrast that with? Verse 10. Remember what verse 10 opened with? Have we not all one father? So this is, this is establishing a boundary and, and demonstrating how they are going outside of that boundary. Now the issue here is not interracial marriage. We need to get that off the table. That's not the thing. God is not concerned with preserving some sort of human bloodline to continue in his people. He is concerned with the religious effects, the spiritual effect of the people of God going outside of the covenant of Israel and marrying and being influenced by people who do not share the values of Yahweh. This is not so much about the human aspect as it is about influence. So we contrast this. The marriage of the daughter of another God, that just means someone who does not share the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is not in this kind of covenant relationship. This is spiritual. The daughter of another God does not have the one true God as her father, and therefore she does not have the same standards, morals, convictions, restraint, affections. All of that is different. She is radically and fundamentally opposed to what the Lord God has established for his people. And the people are demonstrating faithlessness by going outside of that and being lured away from covenant faithfulness by being attracted to and entering into marriage, the most significant and intimate relationship that God has established for human beings with someone who is opposed to the God of Israel. This is treachery according to God. And you think about all the things that God had done to set his people apart. I mean, from the beginning, God has wanted them to be distinct from all the other nations and all the other pollution and all the other trash that's going on. Not that Israel was perfect, but God was establishing his people. He, he rescues them out of Egypt way back in the beginning. He gives them his law so that they understand what they ought to be doing. He protects them. He provides for them. He gives them food when they have none. He brings water when they have none. He establishes boundaries, both spiritual and literal, around his people so that they are not influenced by the religions and the cultic practices and the child sacrifice and all the ishiness of the foreign gods. He says, you are my people and I set you apart. And in spite of all of this, the people are still being led astray by their affections and their desires. They are unfaithful to the covenant that God has established. And the Lord calls this an abomination. Right? 
He calls this an abomination in verse 11 when his people marry the daughter of a foreign god. This is the strongest language that could be used here. And I think verse 12 appears just a little bit odd at the first reading. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now wait a minute. Let's say that sin has been committed, right? They've gone outside the covenant and married the daughter of a foreign god. Isn't an offering exactly what they should have done? Shouldn't they have brought a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of their sins? Well, yes, that's what they should have done, but that's not what was happening. What was happening is this kind of laissez-faire attitude, kind of, no, it's no big deal. These people were going outside the boundary of what God had established. They marry foreign wives, and they have the gall to walk into the temple with this foreign broad on their arm, defiling the presence of the holy God. So they come in acting like everything is fine. Oh, what's the big deal? I'm here to offer sacrifice. And God says, abomination is being committed because these people hate God. And yet they waltz into the temple and say, oh, what's the big deal? I'm here to offer sacrifices. And then they have the nerve to weep and lament the fact that God isn't pleased with them. You see that here in the next verse? They cover the altar with tears and loud weeping. What a hollow display of self-righteousness. To break covenant with God, to go outside of what he has established and then Throw up your arms in frustration that, why doesn't God hear my prayers? Why isn't God answering me? Why isn't he pleased with me? Because you have broken faith. You've gone outside of the covenant and been led astray. We might call it being unequally yoked. Now, I want the attention of the young people here just for a moment. Middle school, high school, college young people who aren't married yet. Listen to me. Do not... Do not get involved romantically with someone who does not love Jesus. There is no happy ending to that. There is no path forward where that turns out well for you spiritually. Do not consider becoming intimately entwined with someone who does not share the same worldview, the same morals, the same values as the scriptures teach. Don't do it. Girls, I don't care how cute his smile is. If he doesn't love Jesus, drop him. Guys, she might be cute as a button, but if her affections for you are greater than her affections for Christ, done. It is not worth it. There is pain at the end of that road, I promise you. And the idea of missionary dating, of saying, well, yeah, they don't love Jesus, but I bet over time I could win them over. That's wrong on a number of levels. You don't have the power to save anybody. God does. And it is so dangerous to get tangled up in the most significant and intimate of relationships with someone who does not love the Lord. Parents, as you have influence over your kids, as you are able to speak in their life, do not encourage this. Do not allow this to happen. It is so dangerous. And there is pain at the end of that road. So that's my pastoral encouragement coming from the text. Guard yourselves. Wait for the one God has for you. Don't jump the gun here. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. So... There is kind of a general unfaithless, 
faithlessness. There's faithlessness in allowing marriage to unbelievers and going outside of the covenant community. And lastly, God deals with the issue of faithlessness within the covenant of marriage. Faithlessness within the covenant of marriage. Look at verses 14 and 16 with me again. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept the sacrifice, that is? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Here's the situation. People of God, they've come back from captivity. We covered that in Haggai and Malachi. They have taken on some of the culture and the ethics and the principles of the nations around them. They have not remained diligently faithful to the Lord of hosts, but they have allowed their standards to be eroded away by the influence of the daughters of foreign gods and the people of foreign gods. The priests haven't corrected this wandering. They've allowed it to happen, and as a result, God is calling out their sin of getting involved in the first place, with someone they shouldn't have been, and then there's the issue of getting divorced so they can pursue these other spouses and affections and whatever. This is the unfaithfulness within the marriage covenant now that God is dealing with. The institution of marriage is sacred because God established it. It is as old as the world. We see it right away in Genesis, don't we? But more than that, I think, Marriage has been instituted with great intentionality by our Heavenly Father to communicate something to his people. It's significant on a number of levels, not the least of which is what it tells us about God's faithfulness to his people and as we move through redemptive history, Christ's faithfulness to his bride, the church. So this is a huge deal and I think what really makes this such a big deal is what we see in verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in the union? Do you see what that is saying there in verse 15? Verse 15? God not only instituted marriage, he not only looks on it with approval and says, yeah, I think that's a good thing. He is intimately and personally invested in every marriage relationship as he puts a portion of his spirit into that union. A union which is meant to communicate his faithfulness in keeping a promise. So again, the main issue is not so much the horizontal physical aspect of divorce and the devastation that it brings and the ripple effects of that. That's horrible in its own. But the issue here is that God's covenant-keeping faithfulness is being marred. It's being made filthy by the way that the people operate. If they are to model the faithfulness of God, that means in all areas interpersonal dealings, guarding their hearts, remaining faithful within the covenant of marriage. Now verse 15 not only tells us the seriousness of this relationship, but I think it also tells us some of the purpose. This caught my attention this week. I want to share this with you. Verse 15, and what was the one God seeking? 
In other words, what was God doing establishing this marriage covenant, this idea that one man, one woman to come together? What, what, was he, what was he after? Godly offspring. And then he moves on. <laughs> Could use a little explanation there, couldn't we? So here, here's what I'm thinking. This is referring, I think, back to the beginning of the Bible when God first institutes the covenant of marriage and his purpose in marriage there is to propagate and expand humanity, among other things. He commands Adam and Eve and the, and the first people, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? So when people are faithless in their marriages, when they leave the wife of their youth to pursue other things or selfish pursuits or whatever, they are leaving the institution that God has established for the good of his people to communicate his own covenant-keeping character and the means by which offspring are made, ideally. So why is that such a big deal? Why is God so concerned with the offspring here? Not the band, the people. I think there's two reasons. Two things that I thought of this week, and I, you tell me if you agree with this. I think God is concerned, and he was after godly offspring for two reasons. First of all, it's an issue of his glory. We know from the scriptures that every human being is made in the image of who? God. Everyone in the image of God. And as such, we are meant to be mirrors, in a sense, that reflect the glory of God upwards back to him and horizontally to everyone around us. So as God's desire in the world is that his glory cover the earth as the water covers the seas, he does this primarily through his people, through image bearers who will bear his character, his faithfulness, his image, and declare to the world, I know God, he is awesome, he is great, and I'm going to reflect that glory back to him by the way I live my life. So I think, number one, there is a principle here that God's desire to be glorified in the world comes through his people, which necessitates human life, right? Godly offspring. There's another thing, a second reason. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Let me read you Genesis 3, 15. Same words, offspring. Keep that in mind. Keep that word offspring in mind. This is God talking to Satan after the fall. And he says this in verse 15. You know this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Hmm. So what it seems like from that text, is that the deliverer of God's people, the savior of the world, the Messiah, the snake crusher, the one who will defeat God's people is going to be the offspring of the woman. So God's preservation, his protection of the marriage covenant has not only to do with horizontal human earthly effects, but it has to do with the Messiah coming as the godly offspring of the woman, the one who in God's plan would be born 
under the law to redeem those who were under the law. You following with me here? Why is God so worked up about godly offspring? Because Christ comes as the offspring of the woman. And I think, I mean, maybe not the main point here, but I think there is an element of God's preserving power of the institution of marriage so that Christ comes and defeats our sin and stands in our place and does everything that he does so God protects this. This is not just about how this affects us. It has to do with the glory of God, with his covenant-keeping nature, with his glory and his reputation. It has to do with salvation. This is a huge deal. And now, I, we're not going to take time to, to get into every yeah but that comes up in this discussion, Okay? This is why I mentioned at first that I want to be here for a long time and eventually we will get to all the yabbats that come up. You know what a yabbat is, right? I say something, you say, yeah, but, and then go on. So I admit and submit to you that there are situations where someone gets divorced because it has to happen. I still don't think it's the will of God, but it happens. So I'm not, I'm not going to get into every nuance of that, but that's not the point here either. There's a really specific application that the people have been faithless. They have neglected the covenant. They have done things contrary to what God has established for their good and for his glory. And he comes to them and says, this isn't right. And in verse 15 and 16, two times, we see this phrase, therefore, guard yourselves. Let none of you be faithless. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Don't do this. Don't get into it. But the problem is, they do it. They do get into it. The people do act faithlessly with one another. And so do we. Right? None of us are off the hook here. Nobody perfectly keeps their word. Nobody does what they say they're going to do all the time, 100% of the time. You might not be divorced. You might be. You might not be dating an unbeliever. You might be. You might not be someone who habitually breaks their promise or doesn't keep their word, or you may be. Regardless of where you are sitting here this morning, each one of us has failed in this area. Each one of us has demonstrated faithlessness. And if God requires faithfulness, what are we to do? Do we really just need some kind of instruction or a, a system for doing better? You need a better calendar you need to set an alert on your phone so that you can get there on time. That's not God's primary concern. When we come to the New Testament, we see several things that are so amazing. We see Christ succeed where we failed. We see him obey where we are disobedient. And in this context, I think maybe most significantly, we see Christ faithful where we are faithless. Let me read you a couple of texts. 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Do you remember that language of guarding? Verse 15 and 16 of Malachi 2. Guard yourselves against this. Guard yourselves against this. Well, Paul is telling the churches... Christ is the one who is faithful and he will guard you. 
He does what we are not able to do because he is faithful. Hebrews 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Revelation 1.4, grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The theme of the New Testament is that of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We often talk about how in the act of justification we receive the righteousness of Jesus. You ever heard that phrase? I hope you have if you've been here more than one week. That we have received the faithful, the, the righteousness of Christ is all over the pages of Scripture. And I say yes and amen to that. But I would argue that in the act of justification, when we are united to Jesus by faith, we also receive his faithfulness that we are not able to perform on our own. This is the benefit of being united to Christ by faith. What happens to him happens to us. What belongs to him belongs to us. That's what union means. So when we come to the New Testament and we come hot off the pages of Malachi and we see God saying, don't be faithless, don't be faithless, don't be faithless, and yet all over our lives are marked by faithlessness. What's the hope there? What do we do? What if I just told you this morning, well, all you have to do is try a little harder. You just got to work a little bit more. Just come on, dig your heels in and get to it. What a hopeless answer. You don't need to do better. You need Jesus. You need Jesus who is faithful in all God's house. You need Jesus who is faithful to obey where you and I can't. You need Jesus to take your faithlessness and give you his faithfulness. You, you and I have no hope of succeeding in this area unless we are united to Jesus. And what a way to come to the table. <laughs> I have no points of application this morning because we are going to apply this text in five minutes when we come to the table. Christ is waiting for you to bring your faithlessness to him. Have you been unfaithful this week? You break covenant? You fail to keep your word privately, publicly? Bring it to Jesus. Trade that burden of guilt for the freedom of his faithfulness. He'll do it. 1 John 1.9, we confess our sins. He is, say it, faithful and just to forgive our sins. Father, we come to you now so thankful for the cross. Oh, where would we be without the hope of Jesus? It's, it's hard to read these texts sometimes and just be so aware of our inadequacy and our inability. And yet, Lord, don't let pride keep us from laying these things down. We cannot faithfully execute all the duties that we need to do. We cannot be faithful in our marriages. We cannot be faithful to our word unless you give us the strength. So thank you for Christ and for the fact that you have united our hearts with his so that now his faithfulness is transferred to us. Oh God, don't let us forget that in all of the aspects of our life. Whether we come today 
horribly burdened by the sin that we have committed or are committing right now, you stand ready and willing to forgive and to remove those sins by the blood of Christ. So God, for all of us here, we all have some area of unfaithfulness to confess to you. But you are faithful to forgive, to wipe us clean with the blood of Christ. So do it. God, work now through your spirit. Impress this on our hearts. If there are those here burdened by their unfaithfulness, bring them the comfort of the faithfulness of Jesus. He's our only hope. And so we cling to him. And God, for those who are not yet united to you, and not yet united to Christ, who, who long for the release of their burden, maybe it's an area that they're holding on to of bitterness, unforgiveness, habitual lying, theft, adultery, viewing pornography, whatever it is, God, convict us by your spirit. Help us to come clean by the blood of Jesus now as we celebrate the table. And we ask for your help and for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.